We're in the middle of a series, guys. Week two, Real Christianity series. There it's not. Yeah, there it is. See? All right. See? Kind of looks like that. Pastor Rob. Hey, didn't he do a great job on that, on that logo today? Didn't he? Thanks, Pastor Rob. He did a great job on that. I think that was so creative to be able to do that, and I love the bubbles. Um, we are here this morning um, on week two of our series of Real Christianity. We took a break last week because the Gekis were coming in, but we are pushing through the chapter, uh, the second chapter of 1 John, and we are talking about real Christianity. And what I mean by that is what is real about our faith? If you ask 10 different people, definitions of what Christianity is, you're going to get 10 different answers. I'm convinced of that because people have a view of Christianity and many times their view of Christianity is not based on what God's word says. Many times it's just based on their experience. How many times have we heard people say that? Well, I won't go to church or I don't want to be a Christian because, and they tell you a story of someone who did something or something that was said to them or a situation that hurt their feelings or wounded them or even crazier stuff than that, things that make the national news. Isn't it ridiculous that the nation that we live in, and I'm thankful that more and more people are discrediting it, but the nation that we live in has received this definition of Christianity based on 70 people in a church in the middle of the country sometimes that solely go from place to place to boycott and picket deaths and funerals. Have you ever heard of Westboro Baptist Church? How many people have ever heard that? Hands up. Westboro Baptist A lot of people. Westboro Baptist Church is a Christian church, and they go all the way around the country boycotting all of these things. And it makes national news. 75-plus people, who most of them are all related to each other, make national news, and that's a definition of Christianity to a lot of people. That's sick. That's crazy, isn't it? That's so crazy. You know, I don't know if you've been following the news this week, but the world was supposed to end yesterday. Do you know that? That there was prophetic words from scripture, and I say that in quotes, that they were saying yesterday was supposed to be the end of the world. And I can tell you yet, yesterday, when we were in the middle of helping Pastor Rob and Christy move, I was thinking, if the world's ending by the end of the day today, I'm going to get ticked off because this is a waste of time. <laughs> and I said that. I was like, seriously, if it's over today, why are we even doing this? You know, I was like, why can't we just go an extra day and say, Rob, we'll do it tomorrow, and then tomorrow never comes. There are people in this country, in this world, and silly, silly, silly words, but I was laughing when I saw even some of the things news broadcasts would say. Biblical prophecy tells you, da-da-da, the world's going to end on September 23rd. And then when you read the article, you realize it has nothing to do with the Bible. In fact, it even says in the paragraph there that most of the scholars and the Christians in both Catholic and Protestant traditions all do not agree with this individual's situation. So they make headline news across the country by saying, hey, some guy thinks the world's going to end on September 23rd. And he said, because, you know, this plus this plus this divided by the square root of this and this and this thing that we see in scripture and the hurricanes all point to this. So it's going to be September 23rd. And the church doesn't even believe it and subscribe to it yet. I can tell you this is a big thing. And this is what the devil does. He puts doubt in the minds of people. And there will be people all across our country that don't understand what was being said. And they're going to say, see, you see, some Christian said the world was coming. It never came to an end. 
Can we even believe with God's word, what the Bible even says? And it has nothing to do with real Christianity. Isn't this the world that we live in? I mean, this is reality. I'm not even making this up. I mean, this just happened. And this is what people are going to say. And we have to know what it means to be a real Christian. What does it mean to walk the way Jesus called us to walk? What is the fruit of Christianity? And that's what we've been talking about two weeks ago. And we're going to hit it again today. Before we do that, though, if you're with me, you know, every week I want to use the same scripture as our foundation and encourage us all to read it together. And I'll explain it why. So let's do that. Second Timothy three sixteen through 17. Let's read that scripture together. It says this. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul writes to Timothy and says, all scripture is God-breathed. This Bible is God-breathed, guys. It's God-breathed. It's inspired by God himself through the Holy Spirit, written through 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 plus years and 1,666 excuse me, different books that do not contradict each other. And they speak to a timeless truth about God's plan for us and the way that God has called us to live, to know him and to be in relationship with him. It is useful for teaching, which means what is right in a world where right is relative. The Bible teaches us really what is right. This is offensive to people. And I don't mean the Bible. I mean what I'm just saying right now. You know, the Bible teaches you what is right. Well, who do you think you are to tell me that, I'm, that you know what's right and I don't know what's right? Well, because the Bible is my standard of truth and the Bible shows me what is right. That's what Paul says. This is our standard of right. If we want to know what true right looks like, we go to Scripture. But we have to understand what it's saying. It's our standard and its usefulness for rebuking. Rebuking is teaching us what's not right. Hey, I love you and you're a friend or you're a family member, but what you're doing is not right. Well, who do you think you are to tell me? What's right and what's wrong? I'm not anything, but this is what God's word says. And can I tell you, it takes a lot of guts and courage to be able to say that to somebody, to go, I love you enough to show you that this is not right, how you're living. But can I just encourage you to take that step and do that? I don't mean walk around just doing it to anybody, but the people that God has given you influence over to go to, to say, this is what I see in scripture. How is what's happening in a line to scripture? And if people get offended by it, can I just remind you, they're not being offendable. You're not being, they're not offensive to you. They're offending God. They're not offending you. It's not a personal thing. When you take yourself out of it and you show people the truth in Scripture, let God be the one that deals with that. You're not supposed to be the Holy Spirit police and walk around and beat everybody over the head. But right versus wrong is very clear in Scripture. Training is the next thing. Okay, if we all agree that what's going on is not right, how do I get right again? I need to get back on the rails because I fell off the rails. How do I do that? The Bible shows us. And the last is, how do I stay that way? Training in righteousness means once I'm back on the rails, I want to stay on the rails. This is the word of God. This is what we talk about. And what we're talking about in 1 John 2 is just like this. John just shows us what's right. He shows us what's not right. He shows us how to get right again. And then he shows us once we're getting right, how to stay that way all through the five chapters of 1 John. This week's message is called, Do You Know Him? Do You Know Him? Two weeks ago, we talked about walking in the light. And that you can't walk in light and darkness. And this is such, you know, I'm excited to teach through this, this, this passage. And I'm excited to teach through the book of John. But can I tell you, there's so much hard stuff in this book that if you really look at it with open heart and open mind, it's going to challenge you to the core of who you are. 
And it's not because, well, Pastor Paul said this or the speaker of the day said this. No, it's because God's word is going to challenge you right to the core. You can't read this with an open mind and not have it affect you. It is so powerful. Two weeks ago, we talked about walking in the light versus walking in the darkness. We can't walk in both. If you feel separated from God and distant from God, it's not because God walks away from you. It's because you walk away from God. If I feel distant from God, it's because I've walked away from God, not because he walks away from me. Now, that doesn't mean he isn't with me because the Bible says he never leaves us and never forsakes us. It doesn't mean he's not still there, but the intimate relationship of knowing God, the intimacy of the relationship is at risk when we choose to walk more in the darkness. So when people say, I don't feel God, I don't sense God, it doesn't mean that God is no longer there. It means the intimate relationship is no longer there. It works that way in a marriage too, guys. It works that way in a family relationship. For those of you that have a husband or a wife and you know, you know there are some times you guys just feel really, really, really close. And then there are other times that there are other times. <laughs> right? Do you still have a relationship? Yes. Do you have intimate fellowship with each other? No, not in those moments. We feel disconnected. We feel, well, you know, at some point in time, if I feel disconnected with my wife, I don't go, I feel so disconnected. I don't even think I'm married anymore. I'm just going to take my ring off. You know, that's crazy. I've never taken my ring off in 23 years. If I did it, she would get upset. But just because there's a disconnect there in a little bit doesn't mean that there is no longer a relationship. And it's the same thing with us and God walking in the darkness, walking away from God doesn't mean that you're not still one of God's kids, but it does mean the intimate relationship that he's asking you to walk in. And he wants to have with you. And I is at risk, but this morning we're talking about, do you know him? And I'm not just talking about knowing God from a high level. I mean, intimate, deep, real knowing, do you know God? Do you know, this is my question to you, that you can know God. Every one of us in this room has the opportunity and the invitation to have a personal relationship with Jesus. He has made it that way so that it's not an exclusive thing. It's all inclusive. One of the number one ranked influential coaches in the NFL history, his name was Tom Landry, and he was the Dallas Cowboys coach for over 25 years, about 29 years. And he said this, according to the Bible, This idea of having a personal relationship with God isn't at all presumptive. It was God's idea, and it's not at all exclusive. It's available to anyone who accepts God's offer. That's powerful. It didn't even come from a pastor who said that. He said this decades ago, looking at his own life and pointing to the truth that God has made it so. That everybody who chooses to have relationship with him has a way to get there. If you're here this morning and you're saying, I would love to know the creator of the universe, you're in a good place. Because God wants to speak with you and he wants to be in relationship with you. He wants to show you that it's not about boring, dumb, dry religion. Where we come and we put in our two cents and we pray our prayer or give our whatever and then we go home. No, God says every day, I want to speak with you. I want a personal relationship with you. And just like this quote says, it's not exclusive. It's available to anyone who accepts God's offer. Why does he say that? And where does he get it from? He gets it from the Bible. The whole story of the Bible is God's relentless pursuit for relationship with you and I. The whole story of the Bible is about God wanting to know you and wanting us to know him. Isn't that cool? 
That's the whole story of the Bible. No, it's got begats and begats and it's got all these lineage and people killing each other and, and all these weird things and bald guys killing people with bears and, and all kind of weird stuff's going on in here. That's all little details in this story that we could show you how it all comes together. At least I could try. But, but the big picture from the beginning to the end and what I'm so excited about when we finish our mural at the end of the year into next year, my hope is in our kids' mural that we're doing through, the, through the, uh, the children's hallway, is that the way that God intended it to begin from the beginning is the way it will end at the end. Relationship was unhindered between him and creation, mankind, in the beginning before the fall. And at the end, when everything is pulled back together and we have eternity with him, it will be just like it was in the beginning. That's the whole story. Do you know him? God makes the offer for you, and he makes the offer for me. How well do we know God, and how do we know God? 1 John chapter 2 is where we are this morning. We're going to look at verses 3 through 17, and I'm going to talk a little bit about it so we can get an idea of what it looks like and how we can really know God. Beginning in verse 3, we have 1 John chapter 2. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. I like John. He's a pretty direct guy, (laughs) but it can be hard to listen to. But if anybody obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Now, this passage, there's a lot of know in here. The words know and knowing in him and living in him. And what is he saying about all this? Let me first just unpack this a little bit. There's three different ways of knowing God that we're seeing in this passage. And you have to look carefully to find it. But this is what's going on. When he says, do you know God? He's not saying, have you been introduced to God? Hi, my name's God. My name's Paul. Hi, God. Nice to meet you. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the kind of knowing that the Bible talks about in the first one in verse 3. We have come to know him The first know him means in perfect knowledge. To fully know everything there is to know about God in our imperfect mortal minds. The intimacy of knowing God. That's what that scripture is talking about. You can know God through an introduction. You can know God through an experience. Or you can know God through a lifetime of relationship. And what he's talking here is the people that really know God really know him, they keep his commands. And he has three different ways of describing this. The first one is knowing him, the really, really deep, intimate way. And then in verse 3, in verse 5, he talks about those that we know are in him. And then in verse 6, he says, those who we know who abide or live in him. And what he's talking about is there's three levels. They're the people that just kind of know God. They're the people that have actually walked with him in a relationship as they're growing. And then they're the people that actually abide with him. And you know what that actually uh, echoes in the Old Testament to the New Testament? The whole story of how God demonstrates relationship with us. After the fall, when we were separated from God, God dwelt with Israel. He was among them, if you will. The presence of God was there in the wilderness. He was around them, if you will. Wherever Israel was, God's presence was, and you could see him. But it was always like a spectator, where you were looking from the outside, and you could see the presence. The Bible would say, the Bible says in the Old Testament, that when Moses would visit with God in the tent, 
All of Israel would be quiet and they would know because they would see the presence of God communing and being in relationship with Moses. But the nation of Israel was more like spectators where they watched the presence of God from afar. And then when you come into the New Testament, Jesus actually comes to the earth and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And now God is no longer in a tent where you're walking around and seeing him far away. Now he's walking next to you and he's sitting at the table and he's having a meal with you. And if you're the apostle John in the last supper, you're laying upon his chest before he's convicted, crucified and killed because he was no longer far away and you were no longer a spectator. He now walked with mankind. And then after Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2, and he's no longer walking with us. He's what? Dwelling in us. You see how there's three different understandings? There's the God that we watch leading the nation. Then there's the Jesus that walks among us. And then there's the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. And that's the kind of knowing that we're talking about, where we understand the depths of who God is and how we can know him in a deeper way. It's that level in verse 6 that he's talking about. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So how do we know him? We know him by living as Jesus did. The 16th century reformer Martin Luther said this, It is not Christ's walking on the sea, but his ordinary walk that we are called on to imitate. Yes, are we supposed to do great things for the Lord? Of course. Does God want to use us as vessels to reach others and to preach the gospel? And I don't mean just with our words, but I mean to draw people in relationship with Christ. Yes, of course. But the Christ walking on the sea is not the walk that he's really calling us to. Yes, there's miracles that God will do through us, but the best way we could describe walking with him and the most accurate way, and can I be honest, I think the hardest way, is to walk with him in the ordinary walk each and every day to die to ourselves so that we can be in relationship with him. What am I trying to say or what I think he's trying to say here in the first few verses of 1 John 2 is this. Real Christians know God by obeying his commandments. If you really want a deep, perfect understanding to the best of our understanding in this world, a perfect knowledge where you know an intimate relationship with God, knowing Christ, knowing God the Father, requires us to obey his commandments. Now, what does obedience mean? Let me just break this up a little bit because he says obey in Scripture and he talks about commandments. Obedience means to keep. That word means to keep. And keep is to watch or to guard, if to safeguard, if you will. It means to preserve his commandments. When was the last time you safeguarded something? You protected something. Every night, I think most of us, when we go to bed, probably lock the doors in our house. Most of us, I think, probably do that. I don't lock my doors because I don't love my neighbors. I lock my doors because I love my family. See, I preserve something because I love it. And I want my family to be protected. I want them to be safe. I lock the doors for those reasons, because I love my family. God wants us to lock our physical doors, if you will, because he desires us to guard and protect our families. If you're a father or a mother here, you know that God has given you an awesome responsibility to raise up children. That is an overwhelming responsibility, and it's the hardest responsibility, I believe, ever, that he has ever called mankind to do. Ever. Ever. Because they have minds of their own. 
Don't they? They do. Kids have minds of their own. They, they think about stuff and do stuff that I was like, I never did that when I was a kid. And then when I go to bed at night and I close my eyes, God goes, yes, you did. You did. Do you remember? And I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Just this week I was thinking about something and I went, God, I would never have done that to my father or to my mom. And I laid down and God brought back a situation. He says, you remember when you did that? I was like, yes. I remember that. Why'd you have to show me that? Because, because he was reminding me that, you know what? You're no different. Kids have a mind of their own. and It's an overwhelming responsibility. But you know, we're called to nurture them. We're called to preserve them. We're called to love them as babies. Can I tell you, even our culture understands that. If you have a child that's brand new, newborn, if you took that baby and brought it out to the store and just put them in a shopping cart and walked away, you go to jail. If people caught you, For what? Abandonment, neglecting, not caring, not guarding, preserving, or safeguarding that child. God wants us to safeguard his commandments today, church. He wants us to safeguard his law. He wants us to look at it like it was the most precious thing that ever was given to us, because it is. His law is manifest in Jesus. Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to what? fulfill the law. And he said, the greatest gift I can give you is in my son. I want you to preserve and to keep my commandments, preserve them, keep them, guard your homes by locking your doors, guard your hearts by preserving God's commandments. If we don't guard our hearts, we can't preserve God's commandments. And God wants us to preserve his commandments. Here's the piece where I think it gets a little squirrely. We think commandments sometimes they go, they're just a list of laws, right? No, it's more than that. The commandment that we see in scripture and the definition of it is associated with like a court injunction where it's court appointed and court ordered that you must do this thing as a result of circumstances. So what, what this means for your faith, okay, this is what it means. When you make a decision to give your life over to Christ. When I made a decision to give my life over Christ, I also was given the court-appointed injunction to follow God and obey his commands. They go together. It's not like you can say, I want salvation and I'm going to do whatever I want to do. No, God says, if you want to know me and you want salvation through me, Make a decision to trust me, but now it's not an option for you to preserve my commandments. It is, it is a requirement. It is assumed that followers of Christ will obey the commands of God. It doesn't mean that we do it perfectly, and I think all of us would agree that we fail at that at times, for sure, but it is a requirement in Scripture. That's why I think it's a beautiful thing to take the Word of God, and when people say, I want to follow Jesus I want to be, I gave my life to the Lord. How do I live through this? How do I change my situation? How do I help repair my marriage or get my life back in order or whatever God's asking me to do in this situation that we can go to scripture and we should be able as other followers and other believers to be able to go to scripture and say, let's open up God's word and see what the answer is to this without people saying things like, don't just preach the Bible at me. Now, if you bring it to them in a way that feels preachy, then shame on you. There's a different way to bring that. That's, that's understandable. But people that are resistant to the word of God being the, the, the measure that changes their life, I believe are resistant to the salvation of God and what God has actually done in their lives. They don't really understand that knowing Christ, saving grace that we receive from Christ is God's way of saying, okay, now here's your instruction manual. 
And if you want to know how to live and you want to know how to honor me and hold my commandments true to your heart, this is your instruction manual. And when someone comes to you to say, let's do a Bible study and let's see how we're supposed to live based on what we see in Scripture, for you to close that book and go, I don't like that or I'm offended by that. You know, the problem is not the individual bringing it, guys. The problem is our hearts. And that's important for us to know. We need to be willing to do this and we need to be willing to follow God because he died for us. It's not a choice. Yes, we can choose to obey or disobey. But when God saved us, Paul even says this when it comes to honoring God with our bodies in 1 Corinthians. He says, why? Because God paid a price for you. Jesus paid the price for you. Your body is no longer your own. Therefore, honor God with your body. What is he saying there? You're not supposed to have a choice in it anymore. You're supposed to recognize that you have stripped off the title of ownership from your own life and let Jesus take the title of ownership and plant it on your heart. That is more difficult for us to realize, I think, than, than, than maybe we're willing to admit. And when Paul calls us in Romans 12 to be living sacrifices, each and every day he's teaching us and encouraging us to say, get up every day with your feet planted on the ground and say, my life is not my own. Jesus Change me today. Show me what I need to do to live more for you. The things in my life that have to die so that you can live. The things in my life that need to be put to death and put to bed so that there can be new fresh life put into me. The things that have crowded out my thoughts and my mind and my calendar that need to be pulled out of my life so I make room for you. I want to live for you. And that's the choice we have to make each and every day. But it is supposed to be an obligation we have that real Christians know God by obeying, preserving, and safeguarding God's commandments. So what are the commandments? I'm not talking about the Ten Commandments. I'm talking about the greatest commandments that we first see in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And then what Jesus talks about in verse 7 and 8 of 1 John 2. Look at this with me. John says, Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. What are the commandments? Well, in the Old Testament is what I said in Deuteronomy 6, 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. But in the New Testament, Jesus takes that command and he makes it the fulfillment of, in himself, and he says this in John 13, 34. A new command I give you. Love one another, look, as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I believe what this is saying is real Christians know God intimately by loving each other like Jesus loves us. Man, Now, if you're looking for a pill to swallow this morning, this is it. This is a tough one sometimes. But it's not supposed to be. God wants us to love each other the way that he has called us to love, the way he has loved us. In the Old Testament, loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength was important. But remember, God was distant 
in those situations. They were observers of his presence. He didn't live among them, or he certainly didn't dwell within them, aside from when the Spirit came for certain situations and certain applications. But in the New Testament now, with Jesus being on the scene, and then Jesus going and the Holy Spirit getting planted in each one of the hearts of those who believe, he's saying, if you're a real follower of Christ, if you're a real disciple of Christ, you're going to know God by loving each other like Jesus loved us. Do you know, Jesus loved some really nasty people. He did. I mean, people that like we would not want to love. You see some of the stories in the Gospels and the way that Jesus approached things. Even people that, that were like vile and sinful and, and disease-ridden. And, and how about the closest, and this is the hardest sometimes, people that are closest to you that betray you and abandon you. And what did Jesus do? I mean, the three closest people to him ran from him when he was arrested. Peter, James, and John. They ran from him. We see in Scripture, the one who he told, your name is no longer Simon, but your name is Cephas, which means rock, Peter the rock. That you are going to be the one that my church is going to be built upon, Peter. And the gates of hell will not prevail. This man directly denied knowing Jesus three times when Jesus was in the greatest place of, of destruction and torment and abandonment. And Peter walked. John ran away. We don't even know what happened to James, except it says in the Gospels, everyone else scattered. And yet Jesus, in his awesomeness, in his divine nature, but his human nature as well, because he was 100% man and 100% God, forgives Peter, draws John back to himself. And there's restoration, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Listen, we, you may hear those things and think, how in the world could we possibly love like Jesus? This is why I think this is so powerful. Because in the Old Testament, it feel like it was a little bit separate. You know, God was there and we're here. We have to do this. It becomes more of an act of obligation and a law to follow. In the New Testament, it's totally relational because Jesus is in the flesh. God is here in the flesh. And Luke 2.52 says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. And why did he do it this way, guys? He did it this way because he was showing us the way to live. This is the way for you and I to live, to live like Christ. To walk it out when it feels really hard and it feels difficult. Jesus is showing you, you can love others like I loved you because I did it. And because I did it, I'm showing you it's possible for you to do it. He wasn't born as a baby and in the immediate time when he was born, Mary didn't hold him when he was a baby. And then he just started reciting scripture in Aramaic or in Hebrew. He didn't do that. He was a baby. He grew up. He probably pooped his pants. Like, I'm being honest. Like, this, you said that in church. He was a baby. He had diapers. He fell. He hurt his knees. He probably had people make fun of him as he grew up. Yet he was one in relationship with God the Father. He was tempted, the Bible says, in every way you and I were tempted and have been tempted. Yet in his temptation, the Bible says he what? Did not sin. Why did he do it this way? Because he wants to show you loving each other is incredibly difficult. To do it the way Jesus did, though, almost feels impossible. But you can do it. I can do it. Because the one who lives in me is greater than the one who lives in the world. 
And the spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that lives in me and the same spirit that lives in you. So when you think it's impossible to love others, especially other believers, the way that God has called you to love them, you can do it. You can because the presence of God gives you the strength to do it. Verse 9 says, Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or a sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or a sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. He's so descriptive in this passage. What he's saying is not only are you, should you be compelled to love others, but if you're not loving your brother and sister the way that you're called to do it as a genuine disciple of Christ, you're in darkness. You're walking in the darkness. And like I said last week, you cannot be in intimate relationship with God the Father if you're walking in darkness. The only way you can be in intimate relationship is to walk in the light. So what does that mean? It means laying our situations in front of God and saying, God, teach us to love those that are hard to love. Especially the believers within the church. I mean, this is really what he's talking to. He's talking Christian to Christian, follower of Christ to follower of Christ. And that's where the rubber meets the road, man. I, I just... I'm amazed, not at just my own journey and the things that I've failed miserably at over the years. But when I look at the big picture of the church and I ask myself the question, how can we expect the world to embrace the message of Christ when Christians are so good at devouring each other? When Christians are so good at criticizing each other? When Christians are so good at slamming people? And I'm not talking about bringing correction into a situation. If you bring it in a healthy way, like I said earlier, that's not the issue. Correction is necessary. Actually, you need to build relationship with people that are willing to offend you. You know, Not because they're just offendable pe- offensive people, but you have to build relationship with people who are willing to take a risk. If the only people you surround, you with, surround yourself with are people that are just nod their head and pouch on the back and say, great job, I love you, and you know, good for you, and they'll basically watch you basically go down the road to death and destruction, and they'll just cry at your funeral and go, it was a shame, it was a shame. You know, they're my friend, though, but I didn't love, enough to speak, love them enough to speak the truth. That's not a friend. And can I tell you, I don't want people like that in my life. doesn't mean everyone I want in my life should be able to speak anything they want to, but we have to have key people in our lives. You know what I'm talking about? Key people that are willing to speak truth into our lives. And it means we have to become unoffendable sometimes. Because some of the things people will say, even if they say it in the right way, listen, even things that people have brought to me in the right way sometimes have a way of hitting me right in the wrong spot in my heart. And I want to rise up and go, mm, but, but, but do you know what they do? Or do you know what they do? And God said, this is not about them. Is there truth in what they just said? And I went, yeah, there's truth then man up, Paul, put your big boy pants on and deal with it. That's what I feel like God says many times when I look at things. I can become offendable and, well, well, they don't do this or they don't do that. Well, I deal with them and I'll deal with them in that situation. But right now, they're asking you to deal with this situation. What are you going to do? How can a world come to Christ when the church is at odds with each other? How can we preach a gospel of peace when it feels like within the church we're at war? It doesn't make any sense. And yet that's what happens. Division and division and division. And I go, can I tell you, I don't care what, what great Christians someone thinks that they are. If there's ongoing division and, and there's not love for a brother and a sister the way that we're called to love, they are not in an intimate relationship with God. That's what John's trying to say. This is the most important commandment, church. 
Love people. Love your brother and sister. How can you expect the world to embrace the message of hope when we live a life of hopelessness? That's what he's talking about. Can I be more specific about our homes and our families? How do we expect our children to make a choice to genuinely want to follow Jesus if we're at odds with each other? If the church is at odds with each other, what kind of message does it say to the generation that comes after us? I remember a friend of mine a number of years ago told me about a situation that he had when they were with their parents, or I mean, sorry, she had when they, she grew up with their parents and, and, you know, her parents moved, they passed away and she was reflecting on one of the things that she struggled with. And she said, you know, one of the biggest things I've wrestled with in my faith. And I said, what? She said, we'd go to church every week, faithful. My parents would teach in classes and they'd be instruction leaders and, and leaders in the church and everybody loved them. And, and, and you know, and it was a wonderful experience for them on Sunday mornings. But you know what we would do when we'd go home for lunch? And I said, what? They said, it didn't matter what was on the menu. What we were having was roast preacher every Sunday. And we would sit at the table and I'd listen to my parents berate the pastor and talk about what they didn't appreciate about this or how this offended them and this was wrong. And they would sit there with this arrogant attitude of what was wrong and it made me not want to be in church. Listen, there's a lot of dumb stuff that speakers say, that pastors say. I know, I've said many of them. And this has nothing to do with people not saying things about who someone who's speaking or preaching on a Sunday morning. It's about the attitude of our hearts, guys. Because you could, you could replace that person who's a pastor and make it the person you sit next to this morning in church. It could be the person you worked with in a children's ministry this morning. It could be the friend that you invited over or the person in the youth ministry that you interact with or the mom or the dad or the brother or the sister that you're supposed to have a relationship with, but you speak about them in a way that is cutting and disrespectful and unloving. And can I tell you, if that's the way that we live... And that's how we act as Christians. That we're never going to have an intimate relationship with Christ. And what John is saying here is real Christians know God by loving each other like Jesus loves them. We can't be unloving, unforgiving. We can't harbor bitterness. We can't become self-centered to the point where it's all about us and expect to walk in the light. If we don't love others the way that Jesus loves us, we're never going to be the light of the world the way that we've been called to be the light. We're the hypocrites of the world is what we are. And I don't say this talking to you. I'm sitting in the seats with you, figuratively speaking, where I feel like God wants me to look at every situation and say, how do you love people the way I've loved them? I'm like, man, this is hard. This is hard sometimes. You know, It's easier for me to love people like Jesus loves them if I don't have a close relationship with you. You know, think about the people that are further away from you to not love them. You know, you just have like a, a um, what's the word? It's not a deep relationship. It's just a surface level kind of relationship because you can love them and be kind or whatever. But the rubber meets the road with people that you know. The rubber meets the road with people you have a deep connection with because if you don't love them really like Jesus loved them, I mean, he, he gets right to the core of our hearts. You know, the people that, you know, that don't clean the bathroom that you use you know, in your house or like go to college and live with some people for a couple years. Can I tell you, college students can be really disorganized and stinky. They can. And if you share a bathroom, like I love this situation in college when they talk about sweet mates, you know, oh, we have sweet mates. What's a sweet mate? Well, it's me and somebody else. And then two or three other people, we share a bathroom. And I'm like, "Eh, how's that going? You know, and some of you know, they've had that situation, right? Try living in a situation like that 
where the person you know, that you live with doesn't clean, after, clean up after themselves. You know, or I knew a kid when we were in college, he never did his dishes. He never did any of his dishes. In fact, we had to force one of the guys who was one of our roommates to do his dishes one time. We locked him out one time. This is a true story. We locked him out. I'm, I'm, actually, Sam Kimmel from Last Frontier Ministries, the guy from Alaska, he's the guy that locked the door. It wasn't me. It was Sam. Okay, this is a true story. He was one of my roommates. And then Sam went and, and, and he cut out these footprints on cardboard paper or a little like construction paper. And we put footprints walking all the way through the apartment that went all the way around to the kitchen sink with a sign on it that says, you can't come to bed until you clean up all your mess. And he was in our room and Sam and I were back there. The door was locked and we heard him come in and we heard him walk around and he went, what? Oh man. And he got all worked up because it was like one o'clock in the morning and he probably had an hour of cleanup to do, you know, and I'm not saying that's what you should do. But what I'm saying is there are challenges. There are challenges on how to love people that are close to you. Isn't it hard sometimes to love people that are the closest to you because they see, you see all of their imperfections. But can I tell you, they see all of yours as well. And Jesus calls us to love each other like Jesus loved us. It seems so hard to do, but we can do it. And here's the, here's the how to do it. 1 John 2, 12 to 14. I'm writing to you, dear children, look, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. Verse 14. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. What is he saying here? You can do this first and foremost because everyone who trusts in Christ is a child of God and we have experienced forgiveness from our sin. The greatest, most impossible thing that could ever, ever be solved, the most complicated problem the world has ever seen has been solved through the work of Jesus Christ. And you are benefactors. You're recipients of that truth. I'm recipients this morning of that gift. And if God is willing to go to the ends of the universe to save us from our sin, he is going to give you the strength and the power and the ability to do as he's called you to do. To love others the way he's called you to love them. And he speaks to this at every level. He talks to the young men. Because he wants to remind them, you're brand, I mean, to the, to the young children, because they're brand new in their faith. And he's saying, yes, young children, it's important for you to know that, yes, you know him. To the young men, remember that you've overcome evil. What is he saying? You're further along in your journey, and yet you still have a way to go, but you're doctrinally sound. Keep on walking. And to those that are the fathers, he's saying you have an intimate relationship with him because you knew him from the very beginning. Many of them maybe even met Jesus. So it doesn't matter if you're brand new in your faith or if you've been walking with God for a while or you consider yourself a mature follower of Christ. Every single one of us has the ability and the the qualification to be able to walk this out simply because he gave us a way to do so. Does it feel impossible for you to love others the way that Jesus has called you to love them? I want you to think about that as we're getting ready to close here in just a few moments. And Pastor Matt, if you guys and the team can come up, I want to read the last couple of verses for you this morning because the how is not just remembering who you are in Christ, 
but it's also what he sees in verses 15 and 16. Look, he says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. What he's really talking about here is keeping an eternal perspective. It's important for us to remember first, as we see in John 2, verses 12 to 14, that we're all children of God. If you've put your faith in Christ this morning, you're a follower of the Most High God. He knows you, and he wants you to have an intimate, deep relationship with him. And whether you're brand new in your faith as a brand new baby, or you've been walking with him for years, or you've known him for all your life, you have the strength and the ability to learn to love people more tomorrow better than you love them today. That is possible for you and for me. He shows us that. But then the next thing he says here, when he talks about not loving the world, he's saying, remember that there's always going to be this tension in your life between the worldly things and the spiritual things. And you're going to choose every day as I'm going to choose. Church, we're all going to choose every day. Are we focusing on the things that are temporary or are we focusing on the things that are eternal? If you focus on the things that are temporary, you'll invest your time, you'll invest your gifts, you'll fill your life with everything that God's given you for things that will mean nothing when you're gone. But if you invest your life in things that are eternal, you are building yourself for greater things. Pastor Rick Warren said many years ago that our life is simply a dress rehearsal for eternity. Which means if we choose to live for Christ on this side of the world, sometimes our decisions will look like complete, utter foolishness to the people around us. People won't understand why we make decisions the way that we do, why we bless others the way that we do, why we seek forgiveness. Hey, here's here's a concept while we seek forgiveness for something that we have done and not expect it in return. God doesn't call us to seek forgiveness for things we've done as long as the other person repents as well. He just says, forgive and ask for forgiveness. He doesn't say it has to be conditional. We don't live for eternity, then we get stuck in the temporary. But when we live in the eternal it's easier for us to begin to live like Jesus because what Jesus did, listen, when he did, when he would touch that leper and heal him, when he would go to that sinful tax collector's house and his whole reputation was on the line, when he talked to that Samaritan woman at the well when no Jew was supposed to associate with Samaritans and his reputation was in question, when he hung on that cross naked and lonely and humiliated, he was thinking about Eternity, he wasn't thinking about today. He was thinking about you and he was thinking about me. And he was thinking about why his plan was so important to do. Because in eternity, nothing ends. And this life will be over in a moment. So he gave himself away and died so that you and I could live. I was thinking about one of the evangelical missionaries, a well-known evangelical missionary in the 20th century named Jim Elliott, 
who was killed with four other missionary friends while sharing the gospel to a tribe in the nation of Ecuador. And it's a very famous passage that many of you have heard in a quote, but this is an excerpt from one of his notes in the university that he went to in Wheaton College. And it says this, and it's bolded there in the middle. It says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott was 29 years old when he gave his life. And can I tell you today, the people of that nation or the people of that tribe know Jesus. I remember years ago going to a concert, a Christian concert. It was a Stephen Curtis Chapman concert when Jim Elliott's son stood on the stage with Stephen Curtis Chapman and told the story of Jim Elliott, his dad. And then the man who killed his dad came onto the stage and embraced Jim's son because that whole tribe were followers of Christ. What would it be like to embrace the man who murdered your father? To love others like Jesus loved them, he calls us to come to a place of love and self-sacrifice so that the world will know that he's alive. Would you stand with me this morning?